6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 32 through 37. We are in the fifth session of Job. We're going to be exploring chapters 32 through 37 tonight. And I like to call it the mystery man. A man, a guy called by the name of Elihu. Now suddenly, in the book, the Ash Heap Trio, these three comforters that have been really attacking Job for a, lo- you know, a large number of chapters, are no longer heard from, pretty much. They're silenced, but there's a new voice that now comes on the scene. Now he's a, he, I call him a man of mystery, because he appears with very little introduction and ex, uh, uh, expositors of the Scripture are all with different points of view. Generally, you can go through the commentaries, you'd find that usually will codify through one or two major viewpoints, liberal or conservative, whatever. You get into this issue, all kinds of experts with all kinds of different backgrounds have all kinds of different theories about what Elihu is really all about. There are a number of the what I'll call liberals that uh, like to suggest that these six chapters were really a later edition because they're so different. There's some, thing, some peculiar things about it. And uh, the real experts, in my opinion, reject that pretty crisply because you can uh, uh, reject this as unwarranted assumptions on the basis of structural, theological, stylistic, and linguistic grounds. And I'm going to spare you all that stuff because it doesn't serve any purpose other than let you... Uh, I'll, I'll assert it for the moment. You can check it out yourself. You'll find, I think, that it not only fits in, it fits in very importantly. Now, strangely enough, there are others that elevate Elihu almost as an Old Testament appearance of Christ. And that doesn't fit either. So we've got two extremes, that he's irrelevant. Some of me, some commentators even say that he's it's distracting and there's nothing new in it that the other guys didn't say and so forth. And there's others that put him on such a pedestal, you, you stand back in awe. Where did I come out? I think they're both wrong. So that doesn't mean I'm right, but at least you'll get a different point of view somewhere in between these, because we're going to, it will develop as we go. We're in chapter 32, and the first few verses are what I like to call program notes. The, there's several places in the book of Job where you're sort of given some background before the opera continues or the drama continues. The bulk of the book is very eloquent, very poetic in the Hebrew. It is almost seems to be designed as if it's to be performed as a play. Yet in the front, that whole discussion with Job and all that, uh, with uh, uh, Satan and God, and several places in the book, it's almost as if it's a stage manager's aside, or it's what some people might call program notes for the drama. And uh, and, and so we have some descriptive narrative here before it, before the you know the dialogues continue. So, chapter thirty-two, verse one. So these three men cease to answer Job. That's the three guys: Bildad, 
uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so forth that we've been struggling with for several dozen chapters. It says, These three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes is the way your King James read. But I think Bullinger is correct because the Greek, the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of this, and I argue that they, more, they knew more about the ancient Hebrew in the 3rd century B.C., the best Hebrew scholars, that they assembled for that task than we do today. They indicate that the word isn't their own eyes. It's, it's, uh, he wasn't righteous in his own eyes. It was in the own eyes of the three guys. In other words, they came, it, he, he was righteous in his critics' eyes. And that's, that's why they silenced. They backed off. That's, that's, uh, he, they held their peace, yielding that they'd been wrong in effect. Or at least taking that posture where they really believed it or not. Now, verse 2, then was kindled the wrath. Notice that. He's angry. Four times this young man we're going to deal with tonight is upset. He's not an academic bystander. He's not somebody sort of just equipping from the sidelines. He's heated here. He says he was kindled with, it, it, then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the, uh, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. Now, Elihu is also going to be critical of Job, but he's going to handle it in a different way, and his source is a different place. We'll come to that. The questions that you have for your exam tonight is, who was Elihu? That's the the mystery. And what was his role in this whole dialogue? And the puzzle gets more complicated because in the next session we're going to be in, we'll discover that when God steps in, God criticized those three comforters. He nails them. And then he talks to Job about a number of things. He never criticizes Elihu. Elihu is conspicuous in that he is not criticized by God himself. And I'll show you why. By the way, Elihu means, my God is he. Or something equivalent to that. He's identified here as the son of Barakel, which means God blesses. So these are God-fearing people, obviously, by their names. Now, Buzz was a land near Uz where Job lived. Job lived in the land of Uz. Uz and Buzz, I like the very economic on their spellings here. Um, Uz and Buzz were two brothers of Nahor, who was a brother of Abraham in Genesis 22. So these two brothers dwelt there, and I presume that the land became named after those two brothers of Abraham. That does not mean they're contemporaneous with Abraham, but they may not be far distant. But in fact, what everybody seems to overlook... See, the fact that they live, that he was a Buzzite, may be a geographical term rather than a lineage term. You with me? You follow me? Just in the sense like if somebody was from, from Dan, doesn't mean he's from the tribe of Dan. He may be the region where the tribe that's called Dan, the tribe of Dan lived. You follow me? So uh, in any case, what it does say, it says he was of the kindred of Ram. Well, if you do a search on that, you'll discover Ram shows up in the genealogy of David. In, in uh, Ruth chapter 4. So there, the hint here is, see, if he, if he was a derivative of Buzz, the guy, after which the land was named, then he would be a derivative of a brother of Abraham. That's what most of the commentators presume. On the other hand, if you recognize that could be a geographic description and that the lineage issue is Ram, that plugs him into the line of David. And I find that provocative for some reasons I'll come forward to, but but uh, in any case, he's an interesting guy. And he's, but at the main point, he's a young man. These other codgers that have been harassing 
uh, Job are elders. This guy is younger. And so he goes on. He says, verse 3, it says, Against his three friends was his wrath kindled, because they had found no answer, and yet had condemned Job. In other words, he's upset with Job because Job uh, justified himself uh, before God. He's upset with these three comforters because they had never found an answer to Job's problems, and yet they still condemned Job. So he's coming into this whole discussion with guns blazing. All right? Verse 4, Now Elihu waited until Job had spoken because he was, because, excuse me, because um, they were elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. For in other words, four times this made. Now, verse 6. Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, Days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise. Neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore I said, hearken to me, I also will show my opinion. So here's our mystery man. And uh, some, as I say, some of the commentators treat him just as a brash young man. Cocksure arrogance of youth is the typical kind of uh, description. And seeking to upstage these older men in their errors. Others just see this guy as repeating the arguments of his elders, but I think you'll see some differences as we get into this. I personally agree with those relatively few commentators that sees Elihu playing a very key role here. First, it's important to notice that God rebukes God's, his three friends at the end of the book, but excludes Elihu. And the question I'd ask you if we were having an exam is why? And he's not rebuked, and nor does he ask something else. Um, he does not have to ask Job to pray for him. God instructs the other three guys. He not only rebukes them, he instructs them to pray for Job. He doesn't do that to Elihu. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have, he asks him to do that for some interesting reason. That's back in Job 42. We'll deal with that when we wrap the whole thing up later. Second item, uh, he is given an extremely important role in this drama. He has the longest of all the discourses, six chapters. So knowing how the Holy Spirit operates, he tends to weight things by size, you know. And uh, how important is, you know, this. I love to talk about you. Know, how, how important is the creation? We talk a lot about it. A couple of chapters in Genesis, a couple of chapters in Isaiah, Psalm here and there, a couple of chapters in Job will deal with it. That's about it. How much of the Scriptures deals with the redemption? Most of Genesis. whole book of Exodus. The whole Torah, for that matter. Most of the major prophets, minor prophets. Certainly the Gospels. Certainly, yeah, most of the Bible. So, see, it's interesting. God's greatest achievement is not the creation. It's the redemption. He can create another creation in the breath of his nostrils. Redemption. See, the other thing, Look, how do you measure things? What did it cost him? What did it cost God to create the world? He did it in six days. I don't know why it took him that long. What does redemption cost him? His son. Anyway, so you can wait thing. Well, I think I think this is going to turn out to be very important, but just by the weight of the thing, because the Holy Spirit works that way. Verse uh, th third thing here, you'll notice Elihu speaks with courtesy and sensitivity to Job. He scolds Job, but he does it delicately with tact and love. He has very strong feelings, which he confesses, but his courtesy is in contrast to the sarcasm and the caustic tone of his so-called comforters. 
But the key thing, I think, from verse 8 above and from examining his speech, is that he does not speak from his personal experience. He speaks from revelation. We're dealing here with a spirit-filled young man. And and once you understand that, the fog begins to lift. And this is all consistent with what we've seen previously. Wisdom and understanding can only come from God, and He can give it to the young as well as the old. Holy Spirit gives His gifts severally as He will. Hmm? Now He comes as a response to Job's cry for an explanation. But often God gives us a response, not necessarily in the manner we expect. I see Elihu sort of as a John the Baptist kind of character, sort of a John the Baptist of the Old Testament, except that's a misnomer. John the Baptist was of the Old Testament. Jesus says in Luke 16, 16, and also Matthew 11, he says, the law and the prophets were until John. John was the last of the Old Testament uh, period. But the point is he has that same kind of role. He's a witness to the mediator who is God himself. Both of them were. Elihu sort of appears as a preliminary intermediary before God appears on the scene, which he will in the chapters that follow the session. Elihu begins where his the comforters uh, began, but he ends with words very similar to those that God uses when he finally appears on the scene in chapter 38 and following. Anyway, with Elihu's patience exhausted, he, now addresses, he first addresses these three comforters, what I call the ash heap trio. Verse 11, Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons while ye searched out what ye say. Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job or that answered his words, lest ye should say, We have found out wisdom. God thrusts him down, not man. Now he hath not directed his words against me, neither will I answer him for your speeches. Then he just goes on to describe the, the three friends. They were amazed. They answered no more. They left off speaking. When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more. See, he's got his introduction sort of done. Now he's going to get stuff off his chest. Verse 17. I said, I will also answer my part. I also show mine opinion, for I am full of matter. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is, is as wine, which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person, neither let me give flattering titles unto man, for I know not to give flattering titles, and so doing my maker would soon take me away. Now he's going to turn. He's, he sort of dealt with those guys. He's going to, on chapter 33, turn to Job. But you can see him bursting forth. This guy is spirit-filled, driving, uh, indignant. Chapter 33, verse 1. Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches and hearken unto to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth, my word shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. You're going to discover that his words will be honest, impartial, and they will emerge from an from a anxious but humble heart. Verse 4, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the Spirit of the Almighty hath given me life. There it is, right there. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me, and stand up. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I am formed. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make me afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Which is in contrast to the three comforters were. Their hand, they were very heavy-handed and so on. Now he then, now Elihu starts to analyze Job's view of God. And anticipating what we're getting, I want you to notice, if you study the book of Job carefully, you'll discover Job's view of God 
changes. It goes through some strange evolutions. On the one hand, it opens up, you know, that the dust, I am but dust and ashes and so forth. It all sounds pretty good. But first thing you know, he's really upset. And he challenges God. And so forth. And, and his view of God is maturing from platitudes to depth to enlightenment. And Lihu's going to map that for us a bit. And he gives a whole clue to, the, to the, what the book is really all about. And, uh, people say the book of Job is why do the innocent suffer? Why, you know, the, 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 you know the, it's all about suffering. If that's the case, it doesn't answer the question. It deals with that, but that's not the real issue. And that's going to be the main test in our last session. What is the book of Job really all about? Why does it read to all of us, even if we're not in pain? Well, the first problem, anyway, the Lahu tax is that Job sees God as capricious, acting out of his feelings like people do, according to his mood. You know, what's interesting, that is the position that Islam presents Allah in. Islam presents Allah as capricious. He can do anything. That's the opposite of the God of the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob delights in keep making and keeping promises. There are things he can't do. He can't violate his own nature. He can't be unjust, and so forth. So the, the very and Job has fallen into the trap of taking a view of God that's similar to the presentation of Allah by Islam. But let's move on. Verse 8. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words, saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there any iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me, and he counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in stocks. He marketh all my paths. See, he's he's summarizing what Job has been saying. That God seems to mistreat him without justification in some kind of capricious way. Now, Elihu's answer is not an argument from experience. It's just a declaration right to the point. Behold, in this thou art not just, I will answer thee, that God is greater than man. That's a simple statement, but we really need to understand that and remember that. This is the continual argument throughout the Bible from end to end. Let me quote from Romans 9, verses 20 through 22. Where Paul says, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made, us, made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, and goes on? That whole theme is Romans 9 and all through the scripture. That we must remember that God is greater than man. But now Elihu moves to the second problem Job has, and that's the matter of the silence of God. Job's so frustrated because he, he, he doesn't have any answer. It, it's, it's hard enough to endure pain. It's really more difficult when you don't know why you're enduring it. And he's really frustrated. Job, much of his previous remarks were directed to his frustration. He wasn't really trying to get out of the pain as much as trying to understand why. Because the ultimate pain for Job was not the bore, the, the pus oozing from the, uh, his sores and all that stuff. It was the thought that he had become separated from God. That was Satan's final uh, twist to get Job to feel that way. Well, Elihu continues in verse 13, Why hast thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. He said, God doesn't need to give an account to man. It's part of what he's dealing with here. See, we all struggle with this one. We call it unanswered prayers. 
See, we fail to account for two things, God's timing and the style. We expect an answer to prayer right now. God, I need patience. Give it to me right now. (laughs) And we also don't allow for God's style. How is he going to answer us? You can go through the Bible and list a dozen different ways God answers prayers. Sometimes with earthquakes, sometimes with mighty winds, sometimes with a still small voice. We're all familiar that with, with Elijah. But there's times that each one of the ones that God didn't use there, he used elsewhere. So God is, he has his own style. And we often don't recognize it when it comes. So Elihu suggests just two ways. First, he talks about dreams. When I first ran into this, I thought, oh boy, are we going to get into dreams? You know, we all have our, you know, library on Freud and all that. Am I going to have to go do homework there? No. Verse 15. Elihu says, In a dream, in the vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men, that he, and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. God uses dreams to warn us, according to the scripture. See, one of God's objectives is to keep man from destroying himself. And one way he does this is is through dreams. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not all dreams come from God. But it's interesting, if you get into this area, even from the field of the psychological literature, they were quick to point out that often dreams are a way by which suppressed reality is brought into our consciousness, whether we like it or not. And I won't get into a whole subconscious thing here. I'll get all kinds of letters on that one. But uh, um, I'll make one footnote because I can anticipate some of the letters we're going to get. The subconscious is not attributed to Freud. Freud wrote a lot about it. It's interesting. One of my wife's books, which is very contrary to Freudianism for lots of reasons, is attacked viciously by some would-be Christians, public uh, uh, commentators, that she's a Freudian because you mentioned the subconscious. Those people who make that claim haven't done their homework. The concept of Freud, or of, of dream, excuse me, subconscious goes way back to Augustine and before. And it's even in the, the hidden chambers in the temple speak of it. So there's a whole kind, and, and there is, and there is no competent debate about the fact that part of our memory is below the conscious level. That's all we're talking about. We're not talking about Freudianism. Freud had a lot of theories and wrote a lot about it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not embracing that. Don't misunderstand me. But to recognize the reality of the subconscious is simply uh, recognizing reality. How many of you have tried to remember someone's name and can't remember it? And maybe five or ten minutes later, without trying, it pops into your mind. A retrieval process going on that's below the conscious level. And it pops in, right? We've all done that. How many? Anybody that has been struggling with a mathematics problem in college knows that one of the ways you solve it, that you, if it doesn't yield an analysis, you study it, put all the, th- all the aspects of it in your mind, and go take a nap. Bed at night or a nap, whatever, in the morning, often, it just unravels clearly. And you have to experience that to realize that the mind has capabilities that are below the conscious level. And we go on and on, so I, I, don't, I don't waste all our time on that, but if you're really interested in this area, I encourage you to understand the architecture of the temple. Seven times in the New Testament, the Bible says you are the temple of God. Now, it's using that in several different ways, but one of which we discover is that the architecture of the temple is a map of your software architecture. 
all the way from the holy in a holy place, the spirit and the heart, all the way out to the outer court, the flesh, the soul, the soul and the flesh, um, the, the soul and the body together called the flesh. Um, and what's interesting, the tabernacle, that their tabernacle is the same model, except the temple had two things that the tabernacle did not. It had the porch and the pillars, big bronze pillars, named uh, Yachin and Boaz in his counsel and his strength. We discover that's the volition, what we call the will. And that's where the battles are fought. And if you really want to get into this, we have a briefing package called The Architecture of Man. But if you really want to get into it, the detailed background is in my wife's books where she redevelops really this in very practical terms called The Way of Agape and, and its sequels. So I encourage you to get into that. And we'll talk, it talks about the hidden chambers and uh, what they really meant, these, these places where the priests hid their private secret idols and so forth. It had to be cleaned out before they could be. Anyway, so let's move on. See, I'm not suggesting here that we get into a course of interpreting dreams. But it's interesting that the scriptures are full of God speaking to men through dreams. Job referred to them earlier in chapter 7. Daniel also referred to that in the opening chapter of Daniel. Peter quoted scriptures, which indicates, by the way, that I may have an advantage over you. In Acts 2.17, he quotes Joel 2.28, which talks about uh, young men seeing visions and old men dreaming dreams. So I have, a, I have an advantage on the dream side. Okay. Uh, but Abimelech in Genesis 20, Jacob in Genesis 30, Laban in Genesis 30, Joseph in Genesis 37, and his two cellmates, remember, they had that dream interpretation that, that propelled him ultimately to his career. And Pharaoh in his famous uh, seven-year visions. Gideon in Judges 7, Solomon in 1 Kings 3, Nebuchadnezzar twice, not only in Daniel 2, but also in Daniel 4. And Joseph, that is Mary's husband, had a dream three times God spoke to Joseph in dreams. And don't forget Pilate's wife. God spoke to her in dreams. So I'm not making a case except that God can use many different things, dreams being one of them. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music